Hi, this is Bron Burton and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Good morning. It's two minutes past nine. You're tuned to 102.73 Triple Arts. Time for this week's edition of Radio Marinara. We're the program about all things wet and salty. My name's Bron Burton and joining me by Skype is... Cade Mills. Oh, hey. <laughs> do you know how great this is, Cade? <laughs> so good to hear your lovely voice. Oh, I'll just pick myself up. Yeah, I- I actually got told last week that Gigi were quiet during the middle of that show last week. <laughs> Basically, uh, yeah, if you missed last week's show, it was extremely entertaining, I'm sure. It, um, I think, aged me by about 20 years. But, yeah, <clears throat> we got there in the end. So, um, wonderful, wonderful. We're, um, we're all, the dots have all aligned, joined. The planets have aligned. I don't know, whatever it is. Um, I'm going to say thanks to Nerida up front for um, panelling here today. And um, you can catch Nerida on the mic on Livewire on Saturday evenings at 10 o'clock. And thanks to Kent. Kent is here with us as well. I'm going to quickly uh, thank you, Tim, very much for Vital Bits and uh, thank you, Retro Andrew, for Soulful Bits. Really enjoyed um, Vital Bits this morning. You can catch Tim next Saturday morning at 6 a.m. He gets up so early for all of us. Today's program, we have uh, an absolute ripper. Um, Yesterday, I watched an amazing documentary called The Walrus and the Whistleblower. We're going to be speaking with uh, its director, Canadian filmmaker, Natalie Bibo. It focuses on the efforts of um, a former trainer uh, by the name of Phil Demers, who has, he worked at um, a a marine park called Marineland in Canada near uh, or in Niagara Falls um, and uh, realised during his time there that the treatment of the animals wasn't quite what he <laughs> or anyone, <laughs> as you as you might expect, when you, particularly when you see this documentary, um, should be. Um, he developed a very close relationship with a walrus called Smushy and um, in the end he had to leave um, because of, uh, of the practices that were going on there. So this documentary is all about that and his campaign to really bring about change in the way that mar- marine mammals are, um, are treated, um, particularly in captivity. So we're going to be speaking with Natalie about that live in Canada. Um, we are then... Uh, Cade, going to be catching up with Dr. Surf. How great's that? We are, yes. I've been down his neck of the woods, although I've managed to keep um, sliding doors moments with Dr. Surf while I've been down there. But um, I wanted to catch up with him and see how things have been during COVID. Um, I had this vision in my head, especially during lockdown when people weren't allowed to travel to the beach, that it was just going to be this euphoric place with no one out in the water because all the kooks from Melbourne weren't coming down. But well, I believe that's not the case, but I'm sure Dr. Surf will give us a reality check and inform us of that. And also just a quick thing on surfing etiquette, a few new people in the water. So Dr. Surf will be, give his blunt assessment of the best way to be nice in the water. <laughs> oh, wouldn't expect it any other way. Um, <laughs> we're then going to be catching up with Dave Donnelly again. We caught up with Dave briefly last week. Um, Dave from Kilowars Australia, Dolphin Research Institute and um, and regularly here on Radio Marinara. He's going to be talking about an event that happened last weekend um, just with uh, some disturbing behaviour by some people out on the water and resulting in the harassment of uh, a southern right whale and her new calf, which is pretty awful. Uh, you know, you like to think people would just would think better than this. But anyway, Dave's going to talk to us about 
that. And uh, also provide us with an update on the Two, way, uh, two Bays Whale Project. So um, lots going on today here on Radio Marinara. So stay tuned. Um, Cade, I believe you have um, some weather forecast details. I certainly do. And look, I'm going to keep it quick because the easiest way to say the weather for the rest of the week is that overnight it's going to be single figures and during the day we're going to reach a high of 15 on Friday is going to be the one to look forward to. It's going to be a little bit of rain over the next couple of days, um, then reasonably clear, which I guess is why we're having those quite crisp, cool nights, but we're also in winter, so it's to be expected. And a bit of wind around at the moment, it's sort of west-northwest at some spots, um, and we've got a high tide at the heads at 12 o'clock, with a low tide at 5.20 this afternoon, so you should be either heading for a surf or heading for a dive. The conditions have been good for both. Excellent. We've got a minute or so to um, to do some news. Um, I'm going to kick off with um, this is really exciting. It uh, was from a few days ago. Wollongong City Council has passed a motion about um, balloons. This is all to do with helium balloons on calling state and federal governments to restrict the sale and use of helium balloon of helium to inflate balloons. This has been a long running issue that we've been following for a long time on this program, and uh, just just in terms of the damage that inevitably happens to uh, all sorts of sea creatures, but they, you know, at, at best they wash up uh, on the beach and get picked up by someone, but at worst they get ingested and end up causing deaths of all kinds of marine animals. So this is really good and um, it's a good uh, move forward in trying to get, it's not so much about banning helium balloons, but it's banning the use of helium because, of course, if you can't inflate them, they can't fly, uh, fly off into the air. So interesting way of tackling this problem. So just wanted to mention that one. It's, um, you know, all steps forward are good steps forward, I think, in this one. Um, Cade, you've got some interesting interesting news about nudibranchs. I do. Look, the sea slug census is coming up this weekend, so it starts next Friday on the 10th to the 13th, and I guess in that news, so there's a, a web page and also a Facebook group called the Nudibranch Central, which is based up on the Sunshine Coast, and there's a guy called Gary Cobb who's an amazing enthusiast for nudibranchs. He spends like four hours underwater looking for these things and just finds a huge amount up around the sort of the central um, Sunshine Coast. And he's working on some images for nudibranchs emojis. Um, he reasons that there's fish, there's tigers, there's snails, but there's no nudies. And having had a friend or seen a friend at the um, Fringe Festival last year or this year, um, he was last year. He was he was actually successful in getting a brick emoji um, a brick. passed through. A brick emoji, okay. yes. So, and to do it, it's no easy task. So I actually had a quick look to see what was involved. So to do this, you actually have to prepare a proposal to Unicode, which is like an IT standard. And there's a couple of things, and I'll just go to the most interesting one. One is that there's compatibility with the various platforms. The other is the expected usage. So how widely is it? going to be used so that's quite um, an important one but the one I like is multiple uses so for example a shark is not just necessarily used to you know say there's a shark it can also be used as a huckster jumping the shark or a lone shark so yeah. I was thinking Bron any ideas where you could possibly use a nudie <laughs> <laughs> I've got a couple that spring to mind immediately yeah. along that's with eggplant and it's peach quite, it's quite an adaptable um emoji that could be used for many circumstances and people would have a lot of fun with. So, look, I sent the link through to you, Bron, so hopefully we'll put it up on Marinara and um, get some support for it. It'd be great to have a nudie emoji, emoji amongst it. Yeah, oh, we need to get behind that campaign for sure. <laughs> um, that's Ma all, that, sorry? 
maybe we should get in touch with Gary and see how he's going. We can check in with him every now and then to see how his nudie emoji's going. Yeah, we definitely need to do that. Um, one really quick one and then we're going to go to a track. Um, this is this is a big win for Citizen Science. I don't know if you saw this one, Kay. The, the headline grabbed me straight away. Citizen, Science, Citizen Scientist Strikes Gold and Makes Major 460 Million Year Old Fossil Find. So this is brilliant. This actually uh, took place in Central Australia, um, down uh, it's um, in an area called the Amadeus Basin, south of Alice Springs, and uh, a man by the name of Patrick Nelson, who gets out there and does amateur fossil hunting pretty much every weekend. And he knew uh, he made this discovery. Didn't know what he was looking at, but he knew that it was something pretty special. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, the quote here from the article, uh, I'd been out there for a few hours. I was going to come back to my car for my peanut, peanut butter sandwich. And as I started heading back to the car, I thought, this is a bit different. I'm going to collect it. So it was about three centimetres long. He describes it as a bit like a tadpole, quite weathered, but it was usually intact and uh, made the comment that normally you just find bits and pieces of animals, but this seemed to be intact. So anyway, he sent it through um, to, uh, I think it was the Western Australian Museum <laughs> and um, Adam Yates, sorry, from the megafauna Central Museum oh, in, in Alice Springs, sent him some photos and um, Dr Yates said, my jaw just dropped. He's actually really found something. And it was a 460 million year old arthropod fossil that would never been seen in Central Australia before. So arthropods um, still exist today. Of course, they're, they're a, uh, a massive phylum, uh, spiders, shrimp, crabs, scorpions. They're all types of um, arthropods. So this particular one was a marine arthropod in the middle of Alice, uh, in the middle of Central Australia, from 460 million years ago, long before there was any megafauna or dinosaurs, any animals on land. So it's um, it's considered to be a very important gap filler in fossil records. So uh, there's a big win for citizen science. Yeah, and the thing I loved about it is he actually said he's like, I knew nothing when I started. So he just started reading and yeah. looking at web pages, and then just started getting in touch with the museum and slowly built up his knowledge over time. It's brilliant. So it's that starting from scratch and then making this amazing discovery. It's very exciting. It's Estamos escuchando Radio Marinara en 3 R. Indeed, that is where you are here on Radio Marinara on Tres Triple R. 17 minutes past nine. And uh, look, over the last 10 years, we've seen some outstanding documentaries focused on blowing the whistle on the treatment of captive marine animals that is outdated at best and arguably breathtakingly cruel. Think The Cove in 2009 and Blackfish in 2013. Well, adding to this, Canadian filmmaker Natalie Bibo has just released an incredible new documentary, The Walrus and the Whistleblower, which focuses on over 15 years of effort by former walrus trainer Phil Demers to draw attention to animal husbandry practices at Niagara Falls Marine Land and in particular to the plight of a walrus named Smushy. The Walrus and the Whistleblower recently won the top audience award at Hot Docs and is premiering at the Melbourne Documentary Film Festival on now until July 15. It's with great pleasure we now cross to Canada to speak with Natalie Bibo about The Walrus and the Whistleblower. Good morning Natalie, good evening <coughs> for you. It's Saturday evening for you there in Canada. Welcome to, uh, to Triple R in Melbourne. Thank you very much for having me. It's great to have you with us. And uh, look, first, congratulations and thanks for making this incredible documentary. Um, I mentioned Blackfish, I mentioned The Cove. There's a far more human side to this story that you've told, that of Phil Demers, whose surname I think literally means of the sea. Um, and uh, his his role mm -hmm. in trying to rescue marine mammals in marine land. Um, I wanted to ask you first up, I saw in a Q&A, the documentary was two years in the making and I thought maybe we might go back to the start. How did you learn of Phil and his campaign and what led you to decide to make a documentary about it? Mm -hmm. 
Well, I have actually been watching this story on Furl Online for many years. Um, I knew Phil when I was a kid. We grew up in the same small town. And so when he first became famous for this relationship with Smooshy in 2007, um, I was watching it from afar, fascinated by the whole story like the rest of the world was. But um, the publicity that he was getting for himself and for Marineland was positive at the time. It was uh, about this unique human-animal bond. Um, and, you know, the captivity industry had not seen a relationship like like his with Smooshy before. And so, um, you know, I, I sort of sat back and kept watching the story unfold. And then in 2012, when he came out as a whistleblower, saying very different things about Marineland and pulling the veil on what he'd actually been experiencing over the 10 years uh, he'd worked there, I was gripped with fascination and curiosity. Um, but it took me quite a while, actually, to decide to make the film because um, of the relationship, actually, that I'd had with him when I was a kid. You know, I didn't know him very well, but we, we come from the same place. He was a good friend of my brother's. Marineland is a place I went to as a kid, and the story and the, the battle that they were having was so heated. I wasn't sure if I wanted to get involved, um, even in a filmmaking capacity. Um, and it was finally in 2017-18 where I said to myself, um, this story was much too big to ignore, and it's actually the perfect story for me to tell because of the fact that I come from there, because of the intimacy I had with the subject, and uh, and that those were the reasons that I was actually not making the film were the reasons I needed to actually make it. Yeah. So I jumped in. One of the running themes throughout the, the documentary is litigation, and there's a lot of lawsuits flying around from the start to the finish. Did this make you nervous about getting in there as a filmmaker? Absolutely. And that was one of the things that held me back, actually, for, for several years, was just watching all of those play out. The bulk of them were launched in 2012 and 13 when uh, Phil came out and the other whistleblowers came out. <clears throat> There were actually 15 people that came out, former employees, with similar stories. So um, it was when he's, they started to sue the media that I got particularly nervous. Um, but as those um, were dismissed or settled and I started to do some very serious research, I realized that, again the fear that I had in getting involved in something, a subject that was so litigious, was, again, the reason why I needed to do it. Because, you know, why were there 12 lawsuits on this subject? Why had none of them actually gone to trial? Um, you know, they had all been dismissed or settled, certainly the, the lawsuits against the whistleblowers and the media. And so I knew there was really something to it. And, um, and knew that I could also make a film that was fully defensible and that was nuanced and um, showed a human side to, to, to this battle in a way that hadn't been done before. Yeah. Hi, Natalie, it's Kate here. Look, I think you just touched on then, like that human story was quite a big part of it. And like the thing that struck a chord with me was, and I don't know whether you'd use the word celebrate, maybe acknowledgement's probably better, of um, hypocrisy and things such as, like, by that I mean, like, Phil is against animal cruelty, yet he mm -hmm. loves the taste of steak. Um, mm -hmm. And this is a conundrum that everyone deals with. And I was just curious, is this something that Phil chose to show or was this something that you decided you thought needed to be brought out in the story? It was definitely me <laughs> because <laughs> I remember, well, first of all, full disclosure, um, my brother is in that scene as well. So, you know, my brother and Phil were friends growing up, as I was saying. And so um, my brother was in town from Korea and they were having a barbecue and I thought, Hmm, you know, I should film this and I'll see what happens with it because him, Phil not being a vegan is something we talked about a lot. And certainly it's something that's very, that's public for him on Twitter. He likes to create um, conflict sometimes actually. 
around this subject in order to discuss it. And so I thought that it was a fair um, request to film him, you know, making his, cooking his meat and eating it and having a very classic small town Canadian experience. And, um, but it was in the edit suite actually that the, the decision was made because there was um, some questioning from a lot of people, you know, why do you want to go here? Why do you want to light this match, so to speak, on, on the issue? And I, and I thought, number one, it's really, it's an authentic portrayal of his character and number two, I think a lot of people can relate to the ambiguity of it all. We're all somewhere on a spectrum when it comes to our relationship with animals. And uh, and I thought bringing up those questions was going to be unpredictable and create conversation. And uh, it definitely has done that. <laughs> definitely. Uh, Natalie, I want to ask you about your experience growing up in Niagara Falls. And um, it's what was that experience like? I'm interested in your personal experience and your impression of Marineland because, uh, as, as you mentioned, that you know you went there as a child. Um, it, it was a, an enormous presence in the town. In fact, there's reference in the documentary about how Marineland actually played a, an enormous part in the early 1960s for putting Niagara Falls really on the map as a as a tourist destination. What was that experience like growing up there? Uh, and because there was a catchy jingle that you know everyone was singing. What what was that experience like? Mm-hmm. Well, the beginning of summer was always uh, announced by that jingle that would come on the television. And so as you were finishing your school year as a kid, you knew that it was about time to go to Marineland when you heard those jingles come around on the television. And so it was ubiquitous. Um, everyone I knew had gone. Uh, you you would go with your parents. Um, I, I did. Uh, and we also went with our schools. Uh, there were a lot of uh, school groups that were taken there. It was a very popular destination with teachers at the time. And um, the owner of Marineland had done a very good job uh, becoming a figure, a local figure with a certain amount of power. And so he had political sway. He he built an empire. His his land is, is about a thousand acres wide and right beside the Niagara Falls. So the, the value of that is really incalculable. And with that value came this um, strength and ability to influence things. And so the legacy that he had, both with his commercials, his jingle, and the the love that everyone seemed to have for Marineland, um, seemed to have no bounds and until, you know, the late 80s and the 90s, and there were some protesters out there. But uh, my parents, and, and certainly my family, we weren't a part of that. Those, those seemed to be other people, right? They were on the fringes of society, people who were saying strange things about a place we loved. But it was really over time as it was developing that you could we started to hear whispers from those teachers and police officers saying, oh, you know, maybe this isn't so right, and we've heard these things go on there. But it really wasn't until Phil came out as an insider and also kind of one of us, let's say, a regular guy who came out, who hadn't been a protester, who wasn't an activist, who showed us what his experience was. And that changed a lot of things for for people in the region. Let's focus on the story of Smooshy and her relationship with Phil. Can you take us through that? We mentioned earlier about how they have this incredible bond. He's effectively uh, this walrus's mother or this, you know, the, the dominant parent figure. Um, can, can you talk us through about this bond that they have? Um, and I'll say have because, anyway, I'll let you tell this story. But um, can you talk us a little bit through that? 
Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> he uh, formed this bond with her within about a week of her arriving at Marineland. She was uh, wild caught in Russia, uh, imported into into Canada, and brought to Marineland at about 18 months of age. And there was um, a regular health procedure that was going on where they were trying to draw blood from the baby walruses that had come in. And the procedure is such that you have to contain the walrus. And she was being um, combative and nervous and, and trying to stop the procedure from happening on the other walrus. So Phil, as he was trying to calm her down, um, just happened to put his hands in front of her face during what would have been, I imagine, a very traumatic moment for her. And she took a big breath in, and in that singular moment, from that moment forward, she followed him everywhere he went. Scientists call this imprinting, which means that she came to believe that he was a mother figure. It is something that happens normally after babies are born. They have this experience with their their real biological mothers. Um, the thinking here is, is that because she was undergoing something traumatic, the move and, and, and this procedure that um, potentially she actually um, did start to feel like this was a, a mother figure. And this relationship, which is what really made him famous in 2007, he could walk around. She followed him like a dog. Like he didn't need... He didn't need a bucket of fish in order to convince her to do things. She just did things um, because he was there. Um, And this relationship was extremely strong. And what I wanted to show in the film was that it wasn't just about Smooshy. Phil needed this too. It was a sense of security for him. It was part of his identity. He was a guy who didn't have a whole lot before he started his job at Marineland. He didn't have a lot of direction. He didn't know what he was going to do with his life. And this was a kind of love he'd never known. And that's one of the and it lasted. Yeah, and that's one of the hardest and most heartbreaking elements of the documentary, watching this as he leaves and and basically is blocked from having any of that contact with Smooshy and you don't really uh, have an opportunity to see things from her perspective either as as this has moved on. And it's it's really, really super hard to watch. Um at the start of the documentary she's one of um well at at various points, one of originally five walruses in captivity at Marine World and throughout the documentary, one by one the other walruses die I don't think that's uh giving too much of a spoiler away or probably is but it's important it's it's important for the context of this um did you did you get a sense as you're making the film that there was a growing sense of pressure that the clock was ticking you know the time to do something to save these walruses is running out 100 percent. I think Phil felt that very keenly still feels it actually because Smooshy is um the only one there, I mean, isn't actually, it's another spoiler, not that you'll learn it in the film, but um, Smooshy actually three days after we uh, uh, launched the film gave birth to a baby. Shocking. Shockingly. Yes. No, we all basically, um, our jaws dropped to the floor, um, Phil's included. Um, And so she is now there apparently, although we haven't heard any news after the the birth was announced. We don't know what's happened, how they're doing. Uh, But Smooshy um, had been impregnated somehow. It's unclear how. Um, And um, she gave birth to a a calf. And so now at Marineland, she's there with this baby, um, ostensibly. But before that, um, during the making of the film, 
You're right. Four walruses die one by one. Other animals also, of course, die because all animals die. Um, but a lot of the animals that were dying were animals that Phil was talking about in 2012 when he came out saying, we need to change the conditions. This kind of practice is not uh, tenable for these animals. And as they were dying, the pressure for him, the anger for him, the sense of justice was growing and growing and growing as he's being pursued in a lawsuit. And the animals are dying at the same time, and he's spending thousands of dollars defending himself. And so capturing this, just feeling this pressure cooker increase was difficult for me because it it, it made Phil really um, – he would spin, you know, he would spin in circles, and I could totally understand it. You know, my heart really went out to him. Mm. Yeah, I think that's that's a universal reaction. It was certainly something that I felt uh, watching this as well. I wanted to focus on one of the the positives. Well, there's many positives in the documentary, and particularly in terms of the message that it sends. But the parliamentary bill, which uh, which you feature, known as S two zero three, to ban marine am- uh, mammals or at least whales from being contained in captivity, um, unless for the purposes of rehabilitation. And um, there's a moment where the bill passes through the Canadian Senate. It makes Canada the first country in the world to make captivity of whales and dolphins a crime of animal cruelty, which is is really extraordinary, but it doesn't include walruses. Do you know why walruses were excluded from the legislation? Yes, they the people who wrote the bill, um, the, the the senators believed that enough um, science and uh, public opinion had um, shifted when it came to walls, uh, excuse me, whales, dolphins, and porpoises, particularly whales and dolphins, obviously. Um, and we really were talking about orca and beluga, certainly in in Canada and 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 dolphins. Um, but they um, they believed that the paradigm had shifted strongly enough to include those and that it would be an easier sell and turned out to be not so easy because there were some very strong opponents in the Canadian government who were working with uh, Marine Land and, and other institutions to slow down and stall this bill and eventually they tried to kill it. Um, it didn't work. The bill did pass in a very dramatic set of circumstances, um, largely due to people like Phil and other activists who... Um, spread the word and and really thousands of Canadians who wrote in and said, this is what we want. Um, But the reasoning really was that they should start with whales and dolphins and eventually move on to other species. So what people don't realize is written into the bill is the ability to add other species. So it it would be another battle (laughs) to have. um, But the long-term thinking is to keep um, including certain species that um, this particular group of people uh, feels is, is don't do well in captivity. Natalie, what's Phil's ultimate goal with this continued campaign? Because the campaign is still continuing. Um, as you mentioned, he spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in his own legal defence and um, and uh, the lawsuits against him from Marineland are still continuing. What's his ultimate goal, particularly with respect to Smooshy and I guess now her calf as well? Mm-hmm. Well, emotionally, it's to see her again. Uh, you know, I, I asked him this question so many times in the making of the film because, as a filmmaker, of course, one of the things you're you're wanting to follow is the quest, right? So, what is what is this main character trying to do? And ultimately, he would have these long-winded, very kind of esoteric answers. And when I would say, "Phil, like, what do you want?" and he would emotionally look at me and say, "I just want to see her again. Like, I want to be a part of her life." And so, what that really means for him practically is that 
she needs to be transferred to another facility uh, where he can have access to her, uh, a facility that would allow him to visit or take part in her care in some capacity. Um, there is a facility that's um, planning a new walrus habitat in Toronto, which is just a few hours from where Smushi currently is. And so Phil's immediate goal is to try to get her moved there. But in order to do that, he has to have ownership of her because animals in this country are still considered property, which is uh, one of the reasons why we can hold them captive. So the irony is that Phil is actually trying to get ownership of Smooshie so that he can move her and put her in a place that he feels is better for her and a place he can be with her or see her. Um, but because he's in such a heated battle with Marineland, because she's now given birth, uh, we don't know what that is going to look like. And, and I, I, I couldn't tell you how realistic that is. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, but, I just, uh, but I, that's that's what he wants. Yeah, I suddenly understand the potential twist to this. What can what can people do, Natalie, to help Phil with his campaign? They can uh, well visit our website and also visit uh, Phil's website, um, which is uh, savesmushy.org, and um, they can learn about the cause and. Um, I mean, he has don a donation system set up there to help with his legal defense. I know he always appreciates that. But I think more than anything for Phil and, and certainly for me, who've, who've now, you know, I've really been um, thinking about this a lot, is to to really reflect on our own relationships with animals. What, what, what is it that we want for the planet and what are we willing to tolerate? And it, the, this, the answer is not black and white. And I really hope I made that clear in the film. It's not necessarily a good versus evil. I think a lot of people in the industry love animals. They just have a different point of view of how they should be kept and treated. Um, so I, I think doing that kind of thinking before you take your kids to an aquarium or a zoo doesn't mean you don't go, but think about it, you know, and, and do a bit of research and, um, and make your own decisions. Well, congratulations again, Natalie. Thanks so much um, to you and to Phil and to everyone who played their part in bringing this truth to light. Many trainers, as you mentioned, 15 who came forward to back him up in what he was saying. Details of the documentary, The Walrus and the Whistleblower, it's screening online at the moment at Melbourne Dock Film Fest until 15th of July. Um, we've put the details to that on our Facebook page. Um, thanks so much again to you, Natalie, and pass on our thank you to Phil as well and uh, all the very best for what lies into the future. Thank you very much. That means a lot to me. We've been speaking with Natalie Bibeau, director of The Walrus and The Whistleblower. Back here with Radio Marinara. Um, Cade, are you still with us? I am. Look, our next, our next guest needs no introduction, so I'm not going to give him one. How are you, Dr. Surf? I'm very well. I'm <laughs> sitting here in my winter uniform. I've got trigger trackies and ugg boots on, or I'm looking at the rain. Oh, nice little promo thrown in there. Well done. Uh, <laughs> what I wanted to talk to you about, or what I got you on to talk about, is as someone who grew up on the coast and only recently been stuck in the big bad city, when the COVID lockdown happened and people weren't allowed to travel sort of out of their suburbs, I thought that the coast would be a surfing paradise because all the kooks from the city would not be out in the water. Was that the case? No. <laughs> <laughs> There was a lot of people flouting the laws early on. And even when it first, when we first went into lockdown, even we were a bit uncertain about what we should or shouldn't do. So we um, asked Surfing Victoria and they said, yes, you're allowed to surf as long as you uh, strictly abide to social distancing. 
And I've got a couple of friends who are police down here, so we asked them, are we allowed to surf? And they said, yeah, if you live in the Shire, Mornington Shire, you can surf in the Shire, just don't travel outside the Shire. So and the other thing I should point out for listeners that don't know about surfing, particularly when you're my age, is that social distancing is, is like the number one rule. <laughs> We're basically misanthropic. We don't want to... The, the whole point of surfing is to find the best ways with the fewest number of people. And the only thing that really changed a little bit was that we all drove down separately. We didn't share cars and we'd park away from people and yell at them in the car park rather than (laughs) have a chat. And then we'd paddle out and yell at everybody else to get out of the water. And so we we were very, and we still are, I'm quite serious, seriously now, we're serious about social distancing and and we don't have cases down here we want to keep it that way but uh, surfing by its very nature is an isolated you know you don't want to go out with 40 50 people you want to go out with a couple and so what's that for me and my friends what that's meant is it has been pretty crowded there's no question and i've talked to people on the west coast on the surf coast and it's been really crowded down there too we had a couple of days when it was just silly. Like early on, there was a, a Tuesday, I think we had beautiful big waves, and there were so many people from Melbourne coming down that the locals called the cops, basically, and got them fined. Four or five people in a car, they were parking over people's driveways. And it was really frustrating to see that total... They just ignored all the advice... So, so you're telling well, me that surfers aren't with... immune from being stupid. Who would have thought? Uh, <laughs> Dr. Surf, but, there, um, were, um, there were, you know, because I, I, I remember that happening at the time and there seemed to be this period sort of around late March where there were people who were just looking for loopholes in what was allowed and not allowed. Do you reckon that was a part of that? If this is sort of not part of your regular surfing crowd who would go down there, yeah. these people out of Melbourne going, well, okay, so we're allowed to do this, so let's go and do that? It was one of the few things that you were allowed to do. You weren't even allowed to go fishing, which was totally incomprehensible. But, yeah, it was one of the few things. All sport, as we know, all suburban sport, all school sport, all junior sport was cancelled. There was nothing to do. And... So we had a, we've had an influx of people that have thought, well, now's a good time to start surfing. And as a result of that, the surf shops down here, and I work at Triggers and I've talked to Muzz at Bass, we've been going flat out and to the point where the supply chains haven't been able to meet demand. And by that I mean wetsuits, booties, gloves, hoods. We've got a reasonable range, but we're running pretty low um, because a lot of people have come down and thought, right, I'm going to start surfing. And then around about May, they thought, oh, this water's getting a bit cold. <laughs> so they, they thought, I'd better buy a wetsuit. And, and, and by that stage, with the exception of Rip Curl, the top-of-the-line ranges had all been sold out. Now, there's a story, what happened with Rip Curl is that the story is the buyer of Rip Curl made a mistake and inadvertently ordered, this is before COVID, five to ten times more wetsuits than they needed and he was about to be stacked and then the manager said, oh, hang on. <laughs> so I don't want to plug Ritzville, but they do have a lot of stock. The other brands, things are running a bit a bit low and because they're coming 
they all come from overseas. We're not expecting anything till October, November. But that's that's yeah. just an, uh, an example of a lot of people have come down because they haven't had anything else to do and they decided to go surfing. I will say, though, in the last, say, two to three weeks, it's got really cold. And the, the You're trying to scare been... people away, Dr. Surf? Yep. Yep. It's yep. really cold. I mean, we were out in the full gear on Friday, like everything you could think of, neoprene we had on, and it was still cold. But that's what it is. And that's the crowds have dropped. Thing, sorry, that I wanted to touch on with you, and you started there, is that we do have a lot of new people to surfing during this time. And so surfing etiquette is something that is sort of a bit of an unspoken rule and not something that people look up. You know, people know about it on a golf course but not in the water. What are what are a couple of things that um, people should know before they go surfing with you, Dr. Surf? Well, or anywhere near thing, <laughs> The first thing is, if you're learning to surf, go to the learning spots. Don't come to where we go. And, and so as an example, if you're going down to Torquay, the Torquay area, to learn to surf, go to Torquay. Don't go to Bells. Don't go to Winky. Don't go to Cathedral. Don't go to Impossos. All those local spots that require a certain degree of skill to keep you out of danger. And we've had the classic cases, the guy bringing his girlfriend out. And we had one on Friday, and he just left her. And she drifted into the impact zone and got run over. So if, if you're a girl and your boyfriend's done that, drop him immediately because he is a selfish <laughs> bastard. He has no interest in you. He just wants to get his own ways. But that's the classic where... And, and the parents bring their kids out and it's like head high breaking in two feet on reef. You do not want to be out there unless you know what you're doing. So it's, it's a matter of safety. You can get badly hurt out there if you're in the wrong spot. So you've, you've got to find a spot that is at your level, and if you're learning, go to somewhere like Anglesey's great. Um, Torquay, don't go to the name spots. It's like going skiing and, and never being skiing and kicking a black run. <laughs> you're going to get hurt. The other thing not to do if you've got a little bit more competence is, is if you're not a regular spot, don't just paddle inside and take every wave because that'll really arc up the locals. And what that means is you'll paddle in so that you get priority after every time you've caught a wave. It's a matter of taking turns. And Can if I add one with my mates, we take turns. And yeah. if you don't do this that around here, you're going to be sent in <laughs> by a grumpy well, guy like me. And my personal one is if you are paddling out and there is someone on a wave, paddle towards them. If that means you have to cop the wave on the head, it allows that person to continue surfing without having to dodge and worry about running you over. Don't frantically paddle for the shoulder. And if you can't duck dive under that white water, you should, as Dr. Surfbed said, perhaps be somewhere else. Good on you, Kate. You can come and surf with me after that comment. That's exactly right. If, if you don't... Yeah, paddle away from the, the rider so that you can duck dive under the wave. Don't do what a mate of mine did on Friday and throw your board away when you're duck diving under the wave because I was right behind him and how he, his board missed me, I don't know. And that's a, a, another rule. If you can't duck dive your board under the wave and hold on to it, you shouldn't be there. And I don't care how long your board is. I've got a 9-2, I can duck dive that. But it's a matter of trying to, with the extra crowds 
keeping yourself safe, but keeping everyone else safe too, so that they don't get hurt and everybody gets a few waves and has a good time. That's a COVID message there too, Dr. Surf, your public service announcement on both fronts. <laughs> I will say, down here, we are taking it seriously. We're not mucking around. We, don't, we want this thing to finish. And so we are social distancing, but uh, with surfing, I think it's a lot easier to do that than with other sports. So we've been very lucky. I'm, no one is whinging about... I mean, it's the worst thing that's happened out of this is there's a few extra people in the water and there's really nothing to whinge about from our perspective. There's a lot of people that have had a lot worse things happen. So it's not too bad. Brilliant. Down the beautiful peninsula <laughs> in the rain. <laughs> We're going to have to wrap up, Dr. Surf. We've got Dave Donnelly um, waiting for us. Ah, my favourite whale guy. Yeah, he's going to be telling us about some um, some incidents, actually, kind of along the same vein of people being really selfish and just kind of doing their own thing. I reckon these people probably hoard toilet paper as well. Um, <laughs> but it's been, yeah. a, it's been awesome catching up with you. Oh, it's been a delight, Bron, especially as I'm still down here on the beautiful peninsula. <laughs> <laughs> Have I'll catch you in the water at some stage soon, Dr. Surf. Yeah, drop into the shop. Come down to Triggers and say hello. I always do. You're just never there. You're obviously at surfing nah, at a better spot than a I job, end up at. Hey? <laughs> All right, I'm going to wrap you guys up. <laughs> we'll see you, Dr. Surf. Dr. Surf there. Nice stuff, Kate. Uh, it's always fun catching up with Dr. Surf, and it was interesting to hear that it actually got more crowded, not less crowded than you know, the euphoria that I thought it would be. Indeed. 9.49, you're listening to Radio Marinara. Uh, and uh, I've got a – look, I'm going to say up front, this is not – you can't ring in for this prize. We do have a prize. It's an online application. So we, uh, we, have, a, we have one pass for six months free streaming on DocPlay. So this is a great prize. You uh, have to enter via the Triple R website. So you get one pass for six months free streaming on DocPlay. Play uh, with the focus on quality stories. DocPlay is Australia's most comprehensive curated streaming service for uh, documentary films and series spanning topics such as history, politics, arts, sports, music, and social issues. DocPlay supports local content producers, has a range of viewing suitable for all age groups, including Academy Award winners, festival favourites, and cult hits. So, for more info and a free trial, head to DocPlay. Com. But, of course, if you are a Triple R subscriber and you'd like to win, go to rrr.org.au and we've got one six-month pass to give away. Fantastic stuff. Hi, this is Tim Whitten. If you want to know what's going on in the ocean, tune in to Radio Marinara on 102.73 Triple R. You know where it is. Yeah, you do know where it is. So do we. So does Dave Donnelly. He's waiting for us to uh, catch up on what's been going on with, uh, with whale watching. Good morning, Dave. Good morning, Bron, and good morning, Cade. Good morning, Dave. Yay, we've still got you, Cade. Yeah, we're here. Awesome. Just there. Now, I mentioned at the start of the show, we're going to be talking about uh, something that happened last weekend. Uh, I don't know if you caught our chat with Dr. Surf, but there's there's definitely some really selfish and self-centred behaviour going on out there in uh, in a whole bunch of different sort of forms. But And this was something that, that you witnessed last weekend. Uh, well, I didn't personally witness it, um, Bron, but yeah, we've we've received quite a number of reports, and and who knows, this could just be a post-lockdown shaking out sort of behaviour that we're seeing across uh, our lovely bays and waterways. But um, yeah, it really isn't any excuse for what we've seen um, in, involving the whales and dolphins of uh, Port Phillip and Western Port and our open coasts. So, what actually happened? Can you talk us through the reports that were that came through to you? Because uh, this is pretty disturbing. 
Yeah, well, look, um, well, the first thing to understand here is that southern right whales are um, in the southeastern region of Australia uh, belong to a population of less than 300 isolated, genetically isolated groups. Um, this means the animals are struggling to, to reproduce and to uh, increase their survivorship and, of course, increase their population. So that's probably the first port of call. The next port of call is that um, there are regulations in place to, uh, to ensure that whales are given the space they require to move freely and safely. Um, and those regulations are in place also for the safety of uh, human beings in their vessels. Um, unfortunately, uh, one of our dedicated observers witnessed some behaviour which um, yeah, isn't really excusable. Um, the photographs tell the story. The boat was really recognisable and the, the event happened off Cape Shank involving a, a, hump, uh, sorry, a southern right whale and a relatively newborn calf. Um, southern right whales are very slow moving, uh, coastally orientated during calving season and uh, are, are really just a very passive animal uh, if left alone. Unfortunately, this boat um, effectively rounded the two up at relatively quick speeds, making the animals change direction and, of course, exerting the, the cow. Um, they were later left seen leaving the area at quite a fast pace, which is unusual for southern right whales. Um, so this information has been passed over to the authorities with the photographs. Um, the vessel is recognisable um, and uh, hopefully uh, we can get a resolution on this one and perhaps uh, let let the message get out. This is just not acceptable. It's an opportunity too, Dave, to really remind people out there, and, and I'm sure people who are listening to this program, you know, just would never engage in this kind of behaviour, but they might know people who would. What are what are the repercussions, what are the consequences for people who, who just decide that they're going to go and, and do this kind of thing? Well, I guess, um, first of all, we, we need to ensure they understand the regulations. So the, the regulations for whales and vessels is a minimum approach distance of, for the vessel of 200 metres and to not place the vessel in the path of a whale. Um, the consequences for those actions, if you were prosecuted, um, it depends on the scale of the and the intent and the findings, but they, it's in the thousands, tens of thousands of dollars. Um, Obviously, there's a whole range of different uh, avenues that somebody could take or a judge could take if they were to uh, prosecute. So really, the message here is just don't do it. It's high risk for you. It's high risk for the animals and particularly for southern right whales who are just struggling to survive. We don't want to have this population of animals extinct in our waterways. And we certainly don't want to be the state responsible for that. Um, and it's not the only case from last weekend. Uh, one person interviewed described it as the worst weekend on record um, for whale and dolphin harassment in Victoria, um, which is a really embarrassing um, tag to have on our state. Yeah. You Hi. Sorry, Ron. I've just got a quick one for you, Dave. You, you're out in a boat, hypothetical, you're out in a boat, you see a whale, you get all excited. What do you do? So what do the tour guides do? What do people do? Um, what's best case scenario? Oh, look, best case scenario, particularly for southern right whales, Kate, is watch them from land. They're amazing. They're, they come so close and you can easily appreciate them. But if you are on a vessel, the, the thing to do is to give the animal space. Do not approach any closer than 200 metres. Get out of its way. So don't place strategically place the boat ahead of the whale's path. 
uh, that alters their behaviour. Um, and just sit back and enjoy the experience. And who knows, the, the whale may approach you and there you have it, an, an amazing interaction with wildlife, which is totally on the terms of the animal and you're not pre presenting a situation of harassment or, um, I, I, I guess, um, in involving yourself in the situation and forcing that interaction rather than allowing the animal to instigate it itself. We've got about a minute left, Dave. We were going to catch up with you on the Two Bays Whale Project. Can we have a really quick kind of catch-up summary on what's been happening there? Sure, Ken, but I'd also quickly like to mention, um, as I said, it wasn't just the southern right whales. It was humpback whales at Phillip Island and it was common dolphins, our beautiful little common dolphin community off Mornington. Um, the, the vision from that is uh, shocking, terrible stuff. So please do remember, folks, 100 metres for dolphins, 200 metres for whales. Stay away from them. Um, I was going to say, yeah, we've hey, got Dave, Maddie, what we might do is um, I might catch up with you next week uh, on the Two Bays Whale Project and we'll give it the time that it deserves. If people are out sure. there, even if they're on the beach, if they see um, harassment, are these people in boats, are they on jet skis? It doesn't actually matter. What's the best thing that they can do to kind of take footage and report these people through? Um, 136186 is the phone phone number to call for the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning. Um, we also like to hear about these things to keep in on our records. So if you choose to, you can also share that information with the Two Bays Well Project via our Facebook page. Um, more than happy to help you through the network of contacting the right officers. Yeah, and in the meantime, maybe someone can work on a uh, don't be a jerk regulation because we're just seeing this and hearing this more and more. People, not just in the waterways, but, you know, behavioural all over the place. Hey, it's uh, one minute to ten. We need to go. Thank you so much, Dave. And um, we'll catch up with you next week, I think, on Two Bays, if you're free. That would be great. Sure thing. And uh, I'm glad we didn't get the chance to hear Kate's joke. <laughs> it's coming. It's coming. <laughs> hey, it'll have to wait though, Cade, because we have to go. But thanks so much um, to you as well for this week. Good yep. on you. Thanks Excellent. very much, guys. Excellent work, Brian. Don't be a jerk campaign. Get behind it. Yeah, I reckon. Hey, thanks, yeah. thanks, Kate. Thanks so much to Nerida. She's been uh, panelling for us today, juggling a whole number of different balls. Thanks so much to Kent. He's been uh, keeping things going out in the green room as well. Um, and uh, thank you, Dr Surf, and thanks so much to Natalie Bibeau. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.